Hello, listeners. Welcome. We are very excited to have Matt Hall with us today. Um, Matt Hall is the CEO and founder of an organization called Agile. He's also been involved in launching a global network called uh, the Software Underground. And so we get to hear a little bit of his story and the changes that are taking place in the world of subsoil geoscience. Isn't that wicked? We get a look in the window and we get to hear how some of the questions you've heard us in over the last three seasons are embedded also in worlds which seems as distant from ours as geophysics. Join us. It's, this is lovely because this for me is like a combination of worlds, you know, it's like Matt lives in the local community and is someone I've started businesses with and hang out with and our kids hang out and, you know, it's just like a friend of mine where I live, you know, and Tuesday, like you're a friend of mine where I work, you know, and and they're like two of the most important communities to me in the world, like where I live and where I work. And they both feel like that. They both feel like communities. So it's a, it's amazing for me to have both of you in the pod and talking to each other um, because uh, you're both, uh, I think, incredible leaders in your own right. You know, and so for us to now get into a conversation with each other is going to be fun. I don't quite know where it's going to go. I don't quite know what we're going to talk about. I definitely have some questions for Matt based upon things we've done together and my experience with him over the years. But um, uh, but I'm definitely looking forward to it. You know, and so you know, by introduction to our listeners, other than Matt's a really good friend of mine, and we've started businesses <laughs> together. And I really like him, um, uh, you know, a little bit PhD in sedimentology, you know, 20 something years experience in the energy industry, worked for Statoil, Landmark and ConocoPhillips as a kind of geophysical advisor, written a bunch of books and papers and articles and conference papers and book chapters and edited books and all kinds of stuff. Um, but now you are the kind of CEO and founder of an organization called Agile Geoscience. So you went from ConocoPhillips, Statoil, and Landmark, which are like, you know, these are big uh, institutional organizations in the energy sector, mm -hmm. to starting your own little organization called Agile which sounds like just in a word, sounds like the direct contradiction of those large organizations <laughs> that you work for. <laughs> like in yeah. a word, in a word, it's like, I'm not, I'm not that. <laughs> yeah. And so, so there was a choice you made there. Maybe that's a way of introducing yourself. It's like at some point you made a choice there. And what was that choice? Yeah, I, <laughs> I think there are, there were a few choices rolled rolled into a one big one big decision um like looking back I d i'm not a diarist so i don't really have anything any mm. way of like peering back at, into my head at the time mm -hmm. uh and I, I also wasn't um i wasn't like this really disgruntled person or anything like that either you know so well i wasn't desperate to fight my way out of this corporate environment like looking back i feel like maybe i should have been but at the mm. time um, the decisions, you know, felt doable and felt natural to me. So yeah, I'd been, like you say, around a corporate environment for quite a while after university. 
um, in some pretty big companies. Landmark's actually part of Halliburton, so it's a ginormous company with hundreds of thousands of employees. And um, yeah, I definitely did feel some friction with those organizations, especially at Halliburton, which is a sales-driven organization. And sales-driven organizations have things like quotas, and you must meet your quotas. And if you don't, you know, things start to go down, people get fired, people miss their bonuses and become really unhappy and annoyed. And, and, and there's a really bad atmosphere. And, um, and, and my feeling there was like, I felt like I was in a lot of meetings and this isn't to pick on them in particular, but you know, there were a lot of meetings that kind of went with sales and marketing people where they were asking questions like, how can we make our customers think we're more awesome? And mm. that's basically what it boiled down to. That I mean, that's what marketing is, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and my position was, well, we, we could try being really awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I don't know why, but that's a really difficult thing for, for people to sort of get their heads around, I guess, because it involves sort of risk and, you know, feeling exposed and, doing things that aren't really in the manual uh, at, at marketing school or whatever. Um, but yeah, that always seems super obvious to me. And and so that's, so I ended up leaving that company. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, not particularly unhappy. I just, I, I, I thought I, I don't want to do this anymore. I was getting pulled more and more into that side of things and um and enjoying it kind of less and less. So I stepped back into ConocoPhillips, which is an oil and gas company, um, where I got to work with some extreme, like Calgary for a geologist is an amazing place. Well, I actually wanted to ask you, and I do want to hear about your organization now, but I actually wanted to know why you got into what you're doing like there's something like yeah. I, I I wanted to ask you a very naive question like like what's your favorite rock or what do you <laughs> care about like underneath the earth or something like there's some reason you got into what you're doing and then when you say Calgary is like the best place to be I'm like what what is it like what is, what draws you what Tuesday he actually just before you got on he asked me whether my t-shirt was a quartz crystal you know and I was <laughs> like and I was like no it's an origami guy doing the heron kick from Karate Kid. <laughs> <laughs> Well, close. Yeah, everything looks like like a rock to a geologist. Yeah, I am. I mean, I you know, I I went. I was very fortunate to go on a family holiday with a with a brilliant volcanologist as a sort of Mm. sixteen year old when I was trying to figure out you know what my next steps in life might look like, and he was a professor at the University of Cambridge, and. and we went to this amazing, beautiful part of Scotland in the Inner Hebrides, uh, an island called Rum, which is a, an exposed 65 million year old volcano that's been completely unroofed. So you can see the magma chamber. You can walk around the hills of Rum and you're, you're climbing up through the magma chamber of a volcano. Wow. Um and and it's it's got some unique properties that make it really interesting, uh, sort of globally, uh, because it's got layers in it. And what's incredible is that those layers contain sedimentary structures that you might get in a sand dune, say, or on a, in a in a ripples on the bottom of a river, because there are currents inside the magma chamber, and the crystals in the molten rock 
act exactly like sand grains do in a river. Um, wow. And, and that kind of, that just, you know, that blew my mind, basically. I mean, that was, yeah. I, I'd never thought about stuff like that particularly before. We didn't do any geology at school. I, like everyone else, picked rocks up and thought, oh, you know, <laughs> it, you know it's sedimentary, metamorphic or, or igneous or whatever. I do that but, all the time. But, <laughs> but you know, I mean, you're surrounded by geology in a way. You just sort of see past it, right? Road cuttings and cliffs at the beach and stuff like that. Um, and, and that was the first time I thought about this sort of dynamic earth stretching back in time through millions and millions mm. of years and, mm. and how you could hold a, literally hold a, a, a magnifying glass up to it and learn about stuff that had happened, you know, three kilometers under the surface millions of years ago. Um, and yeah, I, I, I loved that uh, combination of chemistry, physics, uh, the outdoors, geography and geomorphology and, and yeah, that kind of integrated um, broadband kind of wide view of, of nature and time. Yeah, so mm. that, that's, that was what got me into it. And at university, I was really into all, all aspects of it, really. Fossils, uh, volcanoes, the Earth's magnetic field was a fascination of mine at the time. Um, and, then, uh, and then, yeah, got a, like a lot of geologists, like most geologists in the world are employed in the petroleum industry. And, um, Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I mean, if, if you're not... If you're not in academia, you're probably in petroleum. And if you're not in petroleum, you're in one of the, you know, you're, you're in the minority and it's like mining, uh, water, geothermal and, uh, you know, other things like that. So um, it, it was pretty normal for people to go into uh, into petroleum. And then, of course, your mind gets blown on a daily basis by data because... Mm the amount of data and the quality of data you typically you've struggled through a phd with like hard won data points that you collected yourself in the field or whatever and you've got a table in your in your thesis of all the data you collected and then you get to uh, a, an oil company and there's just gigabytes and gigabytes of data in front of everybody all day long and it's beautiful and it costs millions of dollars to acquire and so on. And it's like, you know, mm. it's like the Hubble space telescope kind of thing. It can, mm. you point it down instead of up. Um, but with things like seismic data, we can see through the earth, 10, 20, 30 kilometers. And, the pictures, uh, it's like like doing ultrasound on the human body or wow. something. But I mean, the, 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 the pictures are incredible. You can see landscapes, mm. rivers, uh, coastal uh, wow. rocks, volcanoes. Uh, I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. And, and if, mm. if you're lucky enough to be involved in acquiring that data, you're the first person to see those landscapes, right? You're the first human being to see a landscape from 300 million years ago with, uh, with um, I mean, large-scale features, of course, um, but things like rivers and seas. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's I guess amazing. so. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I mean, I've felt... Um, and, 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 of course, you've got this great purpose, um, which over the space of my career, really, I mean, okay, in the um, early 90s, 
you know, of course, people were aware of the greenhouse effect and the fact that hydrocarbons are full of carbon um, and that burning them produces a lot of carbon dioxide. But I think we were at the tail end of the sort of prevailing view of the 70s and 80s was that drilling oil wells was like going to the moon. You know, it was an incredible achievement. It was an engineering feat. Uh, it was a marvel, right? And, right? and look at all of the wealth we can produce with it. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, my first job was in Norway and, and the wealth there is palpable. Like Norway went from being, I mean, I don't want to say a third world country, but a, a giant fishing village to being this kind of, <laughs> you know, technologically advanced ultra first world country on the basis of the social um, impact that it recognized immediately petroleum would have on its country if it was right. if it did it well, which it did. Um, right. And they, they arguably exploited the petroleum industry for that purpose. I mean, they completely, mm. when I was working there, the petroleum tax that you, the oil companies paid on what they produced was 85%. You know, if you tried to implement something like that in Texas, the whole place would freak out. Um, Absolutely. And because, or, right. Yeah, I mean, it would be... Well, just imagine resource taxes in places like, is it Nigeria that has one of the most incredible resource-rich grounds, do you know what I mean, in the world, but it's just been extracted, right? And so it's, it's, it's just such a different approach, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. They, they didn't... They, the, I mean, I, I don't know. I wasn't involved, obviously, in any of uh, how that un unfolded. I've never worked West Africa. But, I mean, the industry will tell a story of, like, we're, you know, you need to work with us. We need favorable business uh, environment. Um, you know, here, here, here's a list of our demands, basically. When, right. in fact, all of the moves, all of the... Uh, um, the weight in that negotiation is on the side of the country that holds the resource. <laughs> I mean, it's right, right all of it. That's so, it. I mean, yeah. you can, oil is so valuable that the most punitive, awful business terms are still worth it. <laughs> so, mm. and, and that's unfortunately what I think most countries never really realized. Um, and, and so Norway goes around the world now advising countries on how to, get more out of a resource like that uh, in a response. I mean, of course, we want to be uh, as responsible as you can be uh, when you when it's like heavy industry <laughs> and an earth resource. Um, most people don't like the look of industrial exploitation of, of natural resources, um, but it is possible to do it safely and somewhat responsibly. And uh, for, for now, anyway, we seem to need at least some hydrocarbon in the uh, in the energy system in order to function because that's the world that's the society we've built right um but yeah i mean there's definitely the new thing really clearly uh, and it's it's palpable now in the petroleum industry is that it has to die and um mm. and it has to die as soon as possible uh without wow. uh, as you know without the massive impact that it would have if it was shut down tomorrow. So so like what does that look like and how would we right. do that in a humane and equitable way? Would you mind talking more about that? So I guess, you know, it might be obvious to you that that's the conversation 
in the petroleum industry, but I don't know that it's obvious outside of it. And so I'd love mm. to hear just because you're in it, what you what you know and, and what you understand from your perspective, that would be really great, I think, for folks to hear. And to we do, ask. well, uh, just we're, uh, just to build on that, Cheese, like we do talk about hospicing in our work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so when we're looking at major systems change, you know, we're looking at not just how do you create the conditions for fundamentally trailblazing people and initiatives to flourish, but we're also looking at how do we enable things that are no longer working, no longer fulfilling purpose, whether that be policies or people or institutions, how do we actually help them die? Mm. Right. Was, I mean, and you use well. that language and mm. die with, yeah, die well, die with some kind of dignity. Because if you don't help them die with dignity, they are incredibly toxic as they fall, totally. right? And, and that toxicity will, will bleed into whatever the new things are that we're creating. So it's as much part of our world and work to help these systems and structures and institutions and ways of acting die with dignity as mm -hmm. it is about creating the conditions for trailblazers, which agiles become, interestingly enough. Your organization, I feel, is probably without a doubt a trailblazer in your sector, you know, but you're also pointing at the dying. So it's like those two things happen simultaneously. It's not Absolutely. like we get, we don't get to sequence them nicely and say, right. okay, that one's going to die and then we're going to go launch some new things. Right. Right. They're both happening at the same time, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, a viable um, replacement for where we get a huge amount of our, our energy is a, a necessary but insufficient <laughs> prerequisite for, for um, us to stop using petroleum. Uh, yeah, and, um, you know, m my perspective is very much as, you know, a subsurface scientist in in the industry and i like most of my colleagues most i mean most geologists are you know they got into geology because they like the idea of being outside looking at rocks with with uh magnifying glasses and stuff like that right and they're almost <laughs> almost always uh environmentally sensitive people and right. um you know and i like i've long felt that that's great i mean that's what you want is people with a high sense of uh, responsibility and ethical uh, core uh, to to be the ones who are exploiting resources that we need from from the earth um you know so yeah i i, I don't want to say that um there's no I think a lot of a lot of subsurface scientists probably do feel some guilt at working in petroleum nowadays because mm -hmm. it's such a clear, um, not contradiction so much as you know it's uh, it's getting more and more uncomfortable. Um, mm -hmm. Notwithstanding all the things I said about uh, about it still being a necessity, um, but it, what's interesting? So it's interesting and perhaps necessary uh, that a lot of the machinery of petroleum extraction is now sort of slowly turning towards more sustainable energy sources. Mm. Um, mm. The, the least awesome of which I guess is shale gas, um, which is, you know, this essentially new way of looking at, at petroleum right. where instead of looking for reservoirs full of porosity, you're looking for rocks that you can put porosity in by breaking mm. them. 
um, with ah. hydraulic pressure, and they will just produce gas, um, and in some cases, light oil liquids. So it turns out these rocks are everywhere. So um, all the stuff we've been doing, basically, as petroleum uh, explorationists, um, it turns out not to have really been necessary. You can actually pretty much drill a well anywhere you like into an organic mm. shale, squeeze a lot of water into it until it breaks, and then produce gas. So this has revolutionized the petroleum industry, resulted in the, a complete change in the economics of petroleum, a lot of people losing their jobs because you just don't need that many people to do work like that. Um, but it's the beginning of a sort of transition. And gas is better than oil, you know. So, I mean, for example, it's almost entirely put the oil sands of Alberta out of business. I mean, there's no, is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's very expensive to produce bitumen, which is essentially solid hydrocarbon. It's almost cold. What did you just call me? <laughs> um, <laughs> Everyone hated that resource and, you know, the next move of the petroleum industry essentially obviated it uh, and and made it really unnecessary. So um, although there are still some projects in operation, it's not the hot play that it was 15 years ago. Right. Thank goodness. Um, But, you know, in Europe especially, we're seeing all of the marine engineering that the petroleum industry helped develop being turned into, you know, producing things like wind turbine farms um, ah. or uh, many of which you want them to be offshore, right? Um, there's lots of wind offshore. You can't see them offshore um, uh, and so on. So there's, a, there's actually a massive interest industry in decommissioning now too, right? I mean, like, like the mm. de- like, like decommissioning a lot of the, you know, what have been very active sites for drilling is now a huge industry, you know, which is kind of an interesting thing too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, we'll, 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 we'll see how uniformly that is applied. Like I can see that happening a lot in Norway, but like the South China Sea and West Africa, and I don't know, like I don't know mm. how, it's, it's going to come down to how valuable that scrap metal is, I guess, but oh, it's I all see. just economics in the end. Or it's legislation, and uh, I think um, that that's what I've, you know, always been a fan of, especially after my experience of seeing how Norway operates, of just essentially just legislate, just regulate industry and make it do the things you need it to do. Um, it will comply if those are the rules, kind of thing. Um, so. I'd like to see governments get much uh, stronger on stuff like that and just force the oil and gas industry to, you know, to t- adopt the behaviors that we want to see them mm. um, adopt as a society. It's, take, it's, ta- yeah. it's taken me a while in just in my work, because as you know, Matt, a lot of our work was rooted in like build participation, build momentum, get people Mm. talking to each other. Out of people talking to each other, we're going to discover new solutions. We then need to put infrastructure behind those solutions to really drive and accelerate their application. And we need to connect the people who are generating those new solutions to each other so it becomes more of a movement rather than exhausted, isolated actors, right? I mean, that's a lot of the theory of change that I think the likes of Choose and I have been working with within large systems or across... Uh, geographical regions for the last 20, 20 years, at least for Choose and I, you know, and, and, and it's only really in the last five, six years that I've just been like, that's insufficient. 
Hmm. Like we actually need full on legislation to accompany this work. Like people need to told to put on their seatbelts and they need to be told to not smoke in the car with their children. You know, like there's a point, like it's, it's insufficient that, that bottom up groundswell, highly participatory movement building, you know, as strategic as you like it to be, has to be accompanied by changes in law, changes in policy. Like, and, and you need to embed that within these very large strategies for change. You just can't do it without it. Well, that's, I mean, I think that that's exactly right. And I think for me, I think about it as often these groundswells, the grassroots, the insistence on change is what almost forces the legislation. It's not, Mm. you know, I mean, I think sometimes we have a leader who just has a moral compass that can, um, can move things. And that's true. And I would say, you know, um, hierarchy isn't necessarily a bad thing. We needed Lyndon Johnson to say we're going to have a Civil Rights Voting Act in 1968. The majority of Americans did not want that, you know. So sometimes it is a leader, you know, just having a moral compass. But more often, there was pressure on him for years from the grassroots to do those things. So they're not kind of two separate. They're really deeply intertwined. Mm -hmm. And I think that we could see some legislation from what you were saying, Matt, because the eyes are there. Like now we're all looking. Now we're all panicking and saying, what are we going to do? We're destroying things here. Something must change. And so I think in some ways, the grassroots can drive legislation and legislation can change behavior more quickly often than any kind of kind of citizen engagement, right? So it's like a real reciprocal relationship. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because you want want, uh, policy to be informed by reality and and if you if you don't have those conversations at the grassroots you don't know what that reality looks like right so um yeah what you know i think one of the things that eventually um drove me to and again i wasn't desperate to leave the classical industry and my my corporate desk behind in calgary um, but it was the desire to have more freedom in conversation and uh, in mm. the people that I sort of hung out with and the, my colleagues, as it were, in a very loose sense. Um, the, and, and really, actually, looking back, it was, the, it was social media that made me realize that I could have that that those conversations could still happen, even though I wasn't in a place like Calgary and didn't wasn't surrounded by dozens of, you know, amazing, super bright, motivated scientists and engineers all all day long. It, it was the fact that in the in the late two thousands, uh, when I started sort of thinking about a move like coming to Nova Scotia, to, uh, so it's like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, I started to realize that, oh, wow, you know, you can actually have a blog and reach thousands of people that way. Mm. And it can be a technical, highly esoteric blog. You can be on Mm. Twitter and follow other scientists and engineers and be part of that community. And, um, you know, so I wanted to be in all these conversations that have to happen to see what happens next with it, with, with energy, what happens next with geologists what are they going to do for a living um and the, the other big thing that i kind of involve myself in which is kind of the digital uh, realm and what's happening with computers and and um 
data-driven decisions and AI and that kind of thing. And um, that I could actually acquire a whole different kind of intellectual freedom, basically, by leaving mm. that behind and and being wherever I wanted to be. And, and you know, my wife and I came here to Nova Scotia on, on holiday and, um, you know, loved it here and looked at houses on the internet like you do and kind of, you know, found a beautiful place to live. And um, so the, the decision really to come here was completely unconnected in a way wow. from work um, because I felt like work could be wherever at that point. Um, mm. Yeah. So, it was a, you know, I think it's pretty amazing that technology allowed me to make that decision. It was really the internet and the fact that you can buy a $5,000 laptop that's at least as good as any computer that anyone in a giant oil company has or whatever, um, that, that enabled that. Hmm. You've got this. So you started Agile, right? I've, I love this because I, I went onto your website just to look at it again and it's beautifully designed and you did all that yourself, didn't you? You don't even have a branding agency doing that shit. It's so irritating. And uh, I know. Can we hire you for that? No, I was actually, I was actually going to get in touch with you about it. Now. Could you come in and do our branding for us? Um, um, but like, there's this great line on it, which is like, we're scientists. We know data. We know analytics. We know tech. If you're trying to do something no one has done before, we can help. So like if you're trying. Yeah, isn't that wicked, Choose? Like uh-huh. if, you're, if you're trying to do something that no one has done before, we can help, right? And I was really struck by that as like the kind of like the front end mission of your organization, you know, and of what you and your crew have started. And of course, Software Underground has been born out of that. And I want to make sure we get to Software Underground because I think it's really exciting. And I think the questions you've been engaging with around equity as it relates to the Software Underground are going to be really interesting for our listeners, right? But just like a little bit of like, we can do anything, as long as you know, as lo- what was it? What was it? If you're trying to do something no one has done before, we can help. I feel like we might have to give you a ring. Like, where'd that I come know. from? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I do. I do quite enjoy. Um, I suppose you could call it marketing. A lot of people look at some of the things we do and they're like, oh, "Wow, you guys do a lot of marketing." And I'm like, "Do I?" Like, I'm just doing things I enjoy, and um, uh, I guess. Ultimately, the purpose is to make a living. So, yeah, okay, it's uh, it, it, it's marketing. But, um, yeah, I think we uh, – so there's only five of us in Agile. We're a very small company. We've always been small, and growth has not been something we've uh, sort of pursued. I'm a, I'm a horrible manager um, <laughs> and not a particularly adept business person. Um, I That's not s- true. I, well, I see these things as ways to get stuff done. Um, but I, I'm not a sort of growth oriented, uh, business person anyway. Mm. And, um, I, I, I want to get my hands dirty all day. That's all I want to do is make new things and do geology and geophysics. Um, but yeah, we, like we specialize, if we have a specialty, it's in, um, sort of proof of concept prototype, like, I don't know what this needs to be, but let's just try some things. And um, that goes for sort of computer technology. So we, we write code for people to help solve problems. Um, but it also goes for the sort of human technology side of things as well. So, and especially around building communities of practice. And mm. that's, you know, 
something that for me started again at ConocoPhillips, where I was um, involved in a massive company-wide effort to do to basically be a leader in knowledge sharing uh, of technical knowledge in in the organization, and I loved it. I loved all of that. We had like 350 geophysicists. I was like the global geophysics network leader. And it was my favorite part of my job was helping people figure stuff out, getting them, Mm. you know, connecting people. People would ask a question. I'm like, okay, I I can't answer that, but I reckon one of these three people will know how to, you know, um, uh, trying to just keep things moving and keep the questions coming and try to fight against this. Uh, I, don't, I don't quite know what to call it, but a lot of technical organizations suffer from a kind of extended ivory tower syndrome where they name experts as, I mean, at ConocoPhillips, we called them fellows of all things. Uh, you know, can you imagine anything more kind of loaded? And uh, <laughs> yeah, so, all, all that says to me is that they were all men and they were all white. Yeah. <laughs> How could you know that? I know, it's weird. Just from, just from that one word. How did I know that? It's unbelievable. Yeah. And, um, and of course, what you immediately do is you say to that person, you can never be wrong, which is a mm. horrible, dangerous thing to say to a person mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. shuts them down in many ways, unfortunately, but also makes them rather bullish uh, on, on a lot of things. And it says to the rest of the organization, you're not really entitled to opinion on this thing. So it has two horrible consequences and it's all over technical organizations in the name of excellence, right? It looks Mm -hmm. like you're doing something that says, let's really care about. And of course, especially in big industries, there's a lot of focus on safety um, that that permeates the entire organization as it should. And um, so it, it looks like quality control, but it actually is more control than, than quality, unfortunately. So, and a, a lot of it comes down to experts thinking that um, they they need to know the answer to everything, and they're automatically sort of skeptical of grassroots knowledge. Essentially, they're like, mm. "Oh well, you know, has that been vetted? Like, is this person allowed to think this kind of thing?" Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and knowledge networks really expose a lot of that. And, and we had situations like, for example, this almost sums it up for you. Um, someone would ask a technical question. That person's manager would ask a network leader to delete that question because it made their group look bad. Oh. Right? So all oh. these kind of horrible nonlinear um, consequences. And, and so right. I loved fighting all of that and being like, uh, you know, it, it, in that battle. So Software Underground is, I mean, started off as a little Google group of enthusiasts that, you know, and the first people I invited to it were the people who came to the, some early events that I ran in the community to, to try to start conversations, basically. And uh, people came to that event and I was like, oh, we should like stay in touch. Let's like have a, mm. you know, a network thing. And eventually we moved to Slack about six years ago. And now I think we've got about 3,600 people in that Slack. Um, and it's, it's this amazing global, I mean, I almost want to say movement, but that may, maybe makes it sound a little bit grand, but I mean, 
it, it is a movement um, that's uh, f- relentlessly kind of forward-looking and um, motivated by really nothing other than doing interesting and useful things. <laughs> so, you know, it's super... It's it's just it's just a great community. It's one of favorite my favorite kind of things on my um, in, in my professional life. Uh, you know, looking through even my whole career, I'm I'm probably proudest of that that wow. that exists. You know, and that I that I've been a big part of it. So yeah, so it, it, um, <laughs> well, so when you say doing things that are useful, can you give me a sense of what what are software undergrounders up to? <laughs> How do they? And also, like, who are they? Because I think yeah, that's, yeah. like, one of the questions, you, mm. you know, you started engaging with, I can't remember, like, the exact name, but, but it was like, it was like the the Latina geophysics uh, community. And the, it's like, it's become this. And so just like, just because you and I had a bunch of conversations around equity as it related to Software Underground and the board as well. Mm. So not only what you're up to, but like, the deliberateness mm. with which you're forming the relationships to do those things, I think has been one of the things that's inspired me about following a little bit of your journey there. Yeah. I mean, um, I, so it, it would be disingenuous of me to sort of claim that that was the goal all along. Um, you know, that some of the, out, the, the cool outcomes we've, we've seen recently were done deliberately. Um, I mean, I mean, I hang out with you enough, Tim, to to have this phrase "creating the conditions" burned mm. into my burned into my mind. And uh, you know, I think about it a lot. Uh, about, about that's all you can do, really, is 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 try to make an environment where the right things can happen and good things can happen. You can't necessarily make those right things or good things happen, um, but it. Yeah, I mean, like I say, we started off as a group of enthusiasts and naturally enough at the beginning, I say naturally, that's maybe a typical perspective, but I mean, many of those people who came to our early events looked like me, right? So uh, there's a a lot of guys in um, computers and science. Uh, they go to a lot of conferences, they write a lot of papers, they like giving talks, they like being on panels, they like having blogs, <laughs> and uh, right? And t- telling everyone what's what. And so when you, uh, when you organize events, they come to them. And if you offer spots to talk at a conference or whatever, they take them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to ask twice. And in fact, you'd probably be inundated with offers from from these individuals. Uh, thank goodness. I mean, they're you know, it's 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 amazing. They want to give stuff away. One of our big things in Software Underground is that everything is open source, open access. It's free to access. It's all about like getting science into people's hands. Hmm. Um, but we reached a bit of a. <laughs> I don't know what you call it, a crescendo, I suppose, of where that leads. Uh, two years ago, uh, we had our first like conference. We're pretty bold. We went to France and rented this amazing chateau, like a 16th century, beautiful chateau. Like, it was, this is an amazing place. It was like this weird bubble of awesomeness uh, in Normandy. 
and we ate beautiful food and drank wine and hung out talking about geology and geophysics. And, um, and it was great, but we were talking about building accessible communities that aren't, that don't, that aren't gate kept and Mm. aren't secret clubs and aren't elitist. And as we were sipping on our champagne in the, the chateau in Normandy, we realized that we might have become, we might have become something we didn't really intend to become. And um, it was a real epiphany, I think, as an organization. It was like, wow, we've accidentally become mm. like this peak elitist club, really. Although anyone could have come to that thing, the people who said yes were the people who say yes. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, um, so I kind of retreated from that and we looked at, well, actually, I think we were in confusion um, and there were many reasons for my confusion at that point. But then COVID hit and things got cancelled and our new events got cancelled and all the events on the calendar got cancelled. So we very rapidly organised an online thing. And this online thing was the thing. It was the thing that we'd been looking for. It was the thing that 700 people came to from New Zealand and Australia and Brunei and Nigeria Mm. and South Africa and Brazil. And and everyone looked different. And we're sitting around table, virtual tables, having virtual conversations with people in copper mining and geothermal and water uh, management and wind. And I'm like, yeah, okay, this is what we're want to be this is what we want to do more of this is um this is actually what we're aiming for and in my mistaken you know mindset whatever um it it took it took a while but i like to think we'd created the conditions for that thing to happen and for us to respond well to that crisis and provide something useful and interesting to our community for free at the last minute that has had a massive impact on lots of people's careers, you know, and people are, well, there are papers coming out of the thing we did a year ago and people are, um, you know, getting jobs because of the connections they made and stuff right. like that. So, yeah, sorry, that was rather a long story, but I mean, it's, it's a journey, right? And it's a um, constantly evolving picture of what our community needs to look like. And what is the, I think that that's great. And I don't mind the long story. It feels like that's (laughs) the real story, right? Yeah. And I'm curious, um, because that, it's just like, again, this moment of disruption, COVID, right? Like things had to be different. So they were different. I'm curious what the conversations, you all had this epiphany. What is the conversation? Are you talking about how we're looking different? Are you talking about some of the things um, are those conversations alive or is it happening organically just around the work? And it just, because now we're 700 people who look different, who mm. care about some, some similar things, we're just getting to work and then this is happening. Is there a conversation around equity or is it kind of in the action? Yeah, I, I would say it's not in the action yet. Uh, it, um, there's, there's still, uh, I don't, I, and I, I, you know, I don't know what our next moves are, but um, w- whatever happens next is it doesn't seem to me to be going to happen by itself. 
Mm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so while the community is now much richer and we've um, built a much more diverse board and uh, we like the, the last person to join the board is an undergraduate student in Nigeria who's been, you know, just spontaneously trying to teach people, writing tutorials. He won a, a data science contest that was run in Norway. Um, he then came to our last um, event and gave a tutorial on how he did that. Um, he's organizing events in Nigeria. He's part of a, a pan-African data science sort of collective um, that's trying to solve problems with uh, with machine learning, uh, you know, f- for Africans. And I, uh, so, it's, you know, it's really exciting, but um, th- there's still lots of things that have to happen, I think. to cr- What we're trying to create is a platform that people jump into and immediately just see opportunities to amplify, to connect, to produce outputs, to to do do all these things that we want. But I think that platform's not quite there. Mm. It's not quite as accessible, obvious how to access it. It still feels like there's a bit of a cabal, uh, Mm -hmm. a a leadership, you know, that has to okay things. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So, yeah, the thing that needs to happen next is something around... Permission, really, I think, is mm. what it boils down to, and 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 making it easier to start something without any, <laughs> without permission, and without a lot in the way of resources or other people saying yes, you know, your application is approved, yeah. um, which is which is the risk I think that we build just another system kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. That's mm. great. And there's no doubt that kind of looking at your own board and beginning to diversify the kind of like where those decisions are currently held begins to start changing the note and tone of the organization as a whole. You know, I mean, choose will often say, we'll often in our work say people trust invitations from people like them. So if, if the if the central node, if the invitational node of the org, of the system is like largely white male and geeky, you, do, do you know what I mean? Like that's what it's going to invite more and more and more in of, you know? So that deliberate strategy of like looking right at the DNA and saying, wait a minute, like how do we begin to change that? Um, I think that, I think that's the, that's a really strong first step, you know? That seems to make a lot of sense. And, and it's definitely something that we're constantly working with the people we work with on is like, it's not enough to go and engage people. It's not enough to go and look at like our interpersonal relationships. You actually have to look at the very structures and the people who are in those structures, right? To see any kind of significant tangible change. We're getting close to time here, my friends, which which means we're getting to the point where we want to hear what song and poem you have brought to the game today, Matt Hall. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so uh, I'm interested because I know you're a slight, you know, you're into music. So I'm very intrigued. Ah. By mm-hmm. I'm very intrigued. I know. I'm very intrigued <laughs> by what you might have brought in today for a tune. What you got? Well, don't, don't read too much into this. I mean, I am... Um... I, I uh, yeah, I'm one of these, but I sort of I I do love listening to music, but I wouldn't call myself a 
a, a music buff per se. Like I don't mm. really study. And I like I was thinking about uh, when you asked for a song, I was thinking about, well, I don't really listen to lyrics. Um, ah. A lot of the time I, I listen to instrumental music anyway. Um, mm. But even when I listen to songs, I, I'm not a big lyrics person. I'm much more of a melody person, I think. Mm, that's um, true. Yeah, and I do jump around all over the place. Um, you know, I, I like kind of solo piano. I like house music. Um, recently, my birthday's coming up and I'll be 50. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I've been feeling a bit, I don't know, nostalgic or something. Um, so I've been listening to some of the the first music that I listened to. So I thought I'd... I'd oh. share something. It's actually the first track of the first album I remember buying. I'm pretty sure it's the first thing I bought. Wow. Um, it, w- it was either this or it was One Step Beyond by Madness. Oh, which um, is a great tune. Which is a great, which is a great tune. Um, but uh, this one is uh, Mirror in the Bathroom, which is off I Just Can't Stop It by The Beat, uh, who I think are called The English Beat in North America. <laughs> I was 10, uh, probably, when this record came out. It reminds me of the playground. It reminds me of... The thing about Scar is it's got a whole aesthetic. And Mm. I was really into the aesthetic. So you had to have the loafers with the tassels. You had to have the white socks, the short trousers. Ideally, made of like a two-tone material. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Um, and you had a Harrington jacket or maybe like a Parker, like a mod Parker, uh, but Harrington jacket with badges on it. Uh, I'm going to Google this right away. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole, it was a whole thing. And of course, as a 10-year-old, you know nothing of really <laughs> what a part, you know, what the music scene must have been like at the time. It must have been amazing, I think, in Coventry and Birmingham, where which were the centers of Scar. Um, so all of that was completely, but, uh, you know, unknown to me, but yeah, that was the first music that I remember like listening to that wasn't just my dad's music or something in the house. Love it. Nice. Nice. And a, and a poem or a quote, what have you you leaned on? What have you come up with? I I don't really do quotes, but... (laughs) It's this is funny. Our last, yeah, Tuesday, go. I say our last person was like, I don't do poetry. Like, nope. Right. So that's interesting. I'll just be interested <laughs> to see what you have. I mean, you know, yeah. quotes do occasionally resonate, but um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've never been one for like, I don't have quotes on my wall, kind of thing. Um, but the first poem I thought of when you asked me for a poem is probably a bit silly. Do you want, you want me yeah. to read it to you? I expect absolutely. Uh, okay, I'll read it. It even happened to be in my office, so that, I guess, um, tells you everything you need to know. It's the only poetry book I have in my office. It's called Past Perfection, and it's by John Hegley. I'm sure you know John Hegley, Tim. Oh, I hope I can read it without cracking up. Anyway, you used to be my cup of tea, but now you're not so hot. You couldn't see enough of me. But now you see the lot. It used to be a mystery, but now it's only us. 
Once you were my cup of tea, but now you're more like pus. Nice. Nice. I, I mean, the thing is, when I started thinking more about poem, like, well, I can't read that, and I said I mentioned it to Cara, and she's like, "You can't, you can't read that." Um, <laughs> but the only other, like, the poems I read, and I'm not a big poetry person, but you know, they're like Spike Milligan, yes. uh, John Hegley, Roald Dahl. I mean, his poems are amazing. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, so they're not very deep, and they're mostly silly. Nice. <laughs> That Perfect. was awesome. I that love it. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's good. Anyway, yeah, I appreciate I... you asking because it made me read the whole book. So thanks. For that. That's fun, eh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Matt, thank you. Thank you so much for making time to come and do this, mate, and come on and share a little bit of your story and your work and your world. Like I feel like it, it opens up a doorway into kind of a part of the universe that many of our listeners Mm. just don't get to see and they don't get to see how the kind of work that we're involved in is mirrored in other places like Mm. who'd have thought that so much of the language you use and the approach you bring you know uh, in terms of process orientation is is reflected in the world of geoscience subsoil geoscience you know Mm -hmm. and so it's just it's just amazing yeah thank you Cheers. Yeah, Absolutely. thank you so much. It was really great to have you. And I just love this peek into another world. And so thank you. And thanks for the work you're doing. Mm. Yeah, just you're kind welcome. of, I think, I mean, yeah. the authenticity with which you're doing it, it feels like I just part of what I love for people to hear is kind of equity being enacted without all sorts of training or jargon or knowing, but just like, this is the right thing to do. How are we going to do it? I right. think that that's, that's how we're going to get it done. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, I, you know, um, you know, huge kudos to, to Tim who, you know, conversations with Tim are always about work, especially are always, um, really thought provoking and, uh, motivate me to, yeah, to not be afraid basically of trying to change things that you mm. don't necessarily fully understand. Um, but, but, but see a need. So yeah, I, I appreciate that. My kid. Yeah. All right, my friends. Thank you very much. Take care, listeners. You can find us at findtheoutside.com backslash podcast for all the notes and the songs and the poems and the references we have. Uh, And you can also find us on Spotify. There's a playlist there of all the songs we've ever put out through the podcast. It's getting very long now, but who cares? It's amazing. And you can just stick it on. All right. Am I supposed to say something now? I'm sorry. I'm like, wait, am I supposed no, to? Oh, wait. I think, that, I think that's perfect, actually. What you just did was like the perfect <laughs> ending. Great. <laughs> 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 <laughs>